Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padumaro, and Hats on Lamps. It's episode 49. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we're a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we're going to discuss how our draft week went. We actually have a few announcements. We're going to do our card of the week, seven win run breakdown, which we have a lot to talk about with the new format. Our main topics are relics of the past and present. As we discuss the relic deck in the current format, we're going to update our top commons, give you guys some pick orders, and then we're going to review a draft of the new set. So let's begin. Uh, Hats, how was your draft week? Uh, I had a great time this week, actually. Um, it was a little bit of a roller coaster because this last weekend um, I, I had some losing decks that I thought were really powerful. But then uh, I kind of went back in, uh, learned from my mistakes, and uh, uh, adjusted my ratios of what I thought was a good deck in this format and started winning again. And uh, on Wednesday, uh, which is just yesterday from when we are recording this i uh i drafted a deck that was really just straight uh armory uh which is not a kind of deck that we've been able to really draft ever in the history of eternal before it was a it was a time justice fire deck with a bunch of relic weapons not very many units just 12 units in the whole deck and then three wind conjurings which did help uh but mostly it just won by making giant relic weapons bringing them back from the void and attacking over and over until my opponent had no units left it was super powerful really gimmicky and fun uh and uh, any draft format that lets me draft a totally different kind of deck than i'm used to drafting uh is is very promising so i'm having a good time with this set yeah yep. we kind of talked about this i hung out a little bit in your chat and I do think one of the sort of pleasures of this draft format is no one is really drafting aggro yet. And so you sort of have time to kind of do all of these sun, fun synergies so far. And I, But I do feel like there is an aggro deck out there that people are just under drafting currently that, are, that is going to be able to punish a lot of the things that people are doing. Yeah, and that's that was my one loss with that deck, too, was a, a deck that came out of the gates like with a turn one Fury Blade and then just punched me a few times, and then I was kind of on the back foot for the rest of the, the game. Uh, and and so, yeah, I, I don't think that the aggro deck looks exactly like the, the ones from the last format, or it, it, we might have to figure out exactly where the power is there, but it's certainly, it's certainly present. Clearly, there's all these fire cards that would be very good in a very aggressive deck, and I just haven't even tried to to make that deck happen yet yeah i i think part of the problem is these set eight cards don't lend themselves as well to or as obviously to an aggressive deck like there's just there's no gaudy showman of this right. set but there is a gaudy showman in the draft packs and so you definitely can you know you see these hints of aggressive decks it's just so far, it's been hard, even though it's been in the back of my mind that I think an aggressive deck will work. It's just like none of them are clear to me when you're just drafting the set eight cards. So yeah. I haven't really tried it yet. The other factor, I think, which is important is 
that there aren't as many unit weapons in this set as usual. They really pared back on those so that they could print more relics and relic weapons. Mm -hmm. um, and unit weapons are really important for the aggressive deck to keep mm -hmm. those those one and two drops uh, relevant into the mid game when your opponent starts putting up blockers. And yes. you don't have access to those this time, really. There aren't enough of them to, to be able to rely on them. Uh, you can still get a Crown Watch Longsword, but I don't. I'm not. I don't think those are even uh, boosted this time around. So, mm -hmm. uh, so that's we. There has there has to be another way of keeping that momentum and reach for an aggro deck, uh, which usually was pretty easy to do because you just slap a plus two plus two on something and keep attacking. Yeah, that's true. I will say though, Blade Fury on turn one, like your opponent did, is like a great way to get some early damage and then clear an early blo blocker. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think getting comfortable with doing that play is is going to be part of it. But as for my draft week, it's been pretty... I, you were the impetus of this, but I streamed uh, sort of twice this week, which was a lot of fun. I haven't streamed in a long time. It's sort of hard to find the time, but that was a lot of fun. I've been doing pretty well in this format, and not really sure why, because... We kind of talked about this last week, where the decks I draft don't feel, so far haven't felt great, but then have performed very well. And I was kind of getting into this thing where I was drafting a lot of Justice Primal Shadow decks, and sort of like in the last format, they just felt like an amalgamation of a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. But I think the card quality is just much better now. And so they were doing better than in the last format. There's fewer cards that just don't do anything if you don't draw the synergy for them. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And then I kind of uh, earlier this week sort of got had a draft and it just felt like a disaster. It was like three color and all of them were heavily influenced and I didn't really have any fixing. And then that kind of put me off draft for a few days. But then um, when I streamed yesterday, I played the last few games on the stream and went, I guess, three and three with the deck, which wasn't great, but it felt like it overperformed what my expectations were for the deck, which was uh -huh. good. Um, and the games I lost were not my fault. I, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> which, which feels good. I feel like that's one of the reasons I want to stream is so I can like have someone in chat be like, that wasn't on you. Yeah, and it's good for that. Yeah. Because I don't mind making mistakes. I really hate losing when I feel like I had no agency in that loss. But uh, then we sort of on brand... Uh, after that, drafted a really sweet deck that I haven't played all the games with. I just played one game, but I drafted a Crown of Possibilities uh, deck. So it had it's, it was kind of an all-over-their deck. It had Crown of Possibilities, it had Majestic Skies and a bunch of Flyers, and it had a whole bunch of Sacrifice Synergies. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying a lot of these cards uh, that I didn't rate highly, like the Sunset Enforcer. I have two of those. I have Nahid's Faithful. I have a bunch of ways to return Nahid's Faithful. So my first game, I won it with a with a Crown of Possibilities and a Charging Exalted 10-9 Nahid's Faithful. Yeah, that's pretty which, good. 
which felt pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm excited <laughs> to play the rest of those games. Hopefully they end as well as that game did. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like we're both enjoying this format. I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about it uh, until I really sort of sort of started getting into it. And and I think um, I think they've uh, I, we'll talk a little bit about this later on. Uh, but I th- I think it's m- more I think it's more smartly designed in a lot of ways than um, than some of the other environments have been in the past. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I I mean, it's not perfect. Uh, it's very hard to design a perfect draft environment and maybe impossible. But. Uh, I think they did a lot of things right this time around that that keep me interested. So, yes, yeah, I agree. And it's weird because I feel like there's a lot of like warning signs about this set that make me nervous. But the actual draft and gameplay has been surprisingly fun and dynamic. Like, yeah, strategies that. I never expect to work have worked and we'll talk a little bit about things like this later too about but I've just been pleasantly surprised with how varied the decks you can play are yeah yeah me too I would agree with that all right so on to announcements first as always we like to take the time to thank all our patrons in this section we do have a patreon at patreon.com farming eternal where you can donate as little as a dollar a month and get access to our show notes, recording bloopers, and nudge us towards our Patreon goals, one of which we did hit a couple weeks ago. That was our $50 goal to do a live show, which, and this is part of the announcements, we're going to be doing next week on February 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Hats's Twitch channel, which I think is twitch.tv slash Hats on Lamps. Correct. And so you'll find us there and you can watch us look at show notes and spreadsheets and. (laughs) (laughs) This sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. And you get to hear all the pauses uh, that I cut out every time, every episode. It'll be, it's going to be really riveting, riveting television. (laughs) I thought you were going to sell it. Yeah. I get the unedited version for the rest of eternity, so I can assure your Patreon <laughs> listeners it is riveting. Riveting. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And the people you get to thank for this uh, this pleasure are <laughs> Abednego, Clinical Cynic, Meagles, Madness, Big Salty, Tyson Blossom, <laughs> Darth Herman Two, Twin Hex, Cassandra, Jed the Homrid, Raven Dragon, S Ridge Zero Two One Five. Sun Blaze, Worked on Sun, and Yist Out. So thank you all for contributing to the Patreon and making this live show that we're doing happening and keeping this show going week after week. And I did want to also mention in this section, if I don't say your name and you're a patron, please let me know somehow because I honestly cannot figure out the Patreon website. So I honestly have no idea if someone joins or cancels their Patreon subscription. I have like the vaguest idea. I just like happen to sometimes figure it out. So this list might not actually be true. I think this is true. But if you are not a Patreon 
anymore and don't want me to read your name because you don't want to be associated with the show anymore, let me know. If you are a patron and I don't read your name, let me know. I'll add you to the list and I'll continue to struggle to figure out how to come up with this list every week. And then my final announcement, I do have one more actually, is Jed the Hamrid. He created a community survey to get people's draft rankings for all the cards in the new set. And he's been doing some analysis and he wants to do some analysis of that data. But he did make a Reddit post where you can find a link to his community survey for the new set. It uh, takes a little while because it does go through all the cards, but he gives he has a rating system that he created. And, you know, the more people that do it, the sort of more will, you know, know sort of how people in the community are rating all the cards. And it's just kind of fun. You get to see what, how your ratings sort of rank up to everyone's else. So it's fun to do. I recommend everyone do it. And it would really help Jed out. And he puts a lot of work into the Eternal community. So it'd be good to help him with his project. So that's it. We made it through the announcements, Hats. We did it. All right. On to card of the week. What's your card of the week this week? My card of the week is Waystone Gate. Uh, Waystone Gate is a is a new card in in set eight Echoes of Eternity. It is an uncommon. It's a relic. It costs three time, uh, and it says pay three to draw a sigil of your choice from your deck. After the third use, sacrifice Waystone Gate, uh, and it has an entomb effect, uh, which means when this card goes to the void, if it's your turn, play an eight eight giant. The easiest way to make that 8-8 giant happen, of course, uh, is to use the Waystone Gate three times, uh, and and that will sacrifice the Waystone Gate, uh, make your 8-8 giant. Uh, this is a card that I overlooked a little bit when I first saw it, because it doesn't really resemble other cards uh, in Eternal um, for the purposes of draft. Uh, it looks like a relic that doesn't have any board presence. It seems like a lot of power to pay in order to get your giant onto the field. Um, and a lot of the relics that are similar to this in the past have been limited to one use per turn. And so yes. there was part of my brain that was just sort of like, oh, this is going to take four turns to actually do anything. Uh, it is That is not a limitation on it. You can pay as much power as you can afford um, so if you have six power, you can use the Waystone Gate twice. Uh, more importantly, if you have five power, you can use the Waystone Gate twice because you can pay to get a sigil, play it, and then use it again. Um, and so although it requires an investment of 12 power split over uh, however many turns it takes, you're drawing three cards and playing an 8-8 eight eight for the price of putting this one card in your deck. So it is slow, but it is so powerful and i think people who have been playing this format have discovered that if they've even tried putting it in their deck it's terrific and um i can i've played too comfortably in a deck before and had that deck be very strong uh i don't know what the upper limit is on them uh you know it doesn't have any immediate board effect but it draws so many cards it's a really good card and it's a different kind of card to play in draft than we've really seen before so i really like it Yes, I agree wholeheartedly with that assessment. I actually I felt the same way. The first time I played it and realized you could do it twice in a turn was sort of an epiphany, epiphany and really changed my opinion of the card cuz I think that helps it a lot. The fact that sort of as we talked about 
not many people are playing aggro decks. There's no obvious aggro deck as there was in set seven, like Onis. You know, there's nothing like that. So there are so far very few decks that punish people taking the time to play a Waystone Gate and spending 12 power for an 8-8. That was sort of how I think the card first read. You're like, 12 power for an 8-8 is a lot of power to play for an 8-8. Also, you get a sigil of your choice every time you use the ability. So you can play, it helps you play those those four faction or five faction uh, decks if you you need it to. It's It's a legit form of influence fixing. And this sort of leads into my card of the week, was, which was Mysterious Waystone. That is the five shadow shadow cursed relic. At the end of the cursed player's turn, deal one damage to them and gain one health. When you sacrifice a unit, increase this ability by one. We sort of talked about this card a little bit in last episode, and you were a little higher on it than I was. So I drafted a deck with this. Um, card, I got it second pick, and so I was like, oh, I'm going to try to draft a Mysterious Waystone. And that was ended up being a disaster. I only got like... <laughs> I only that's got not like how, That's five, not where I thought this story was going. <laughs> yeah, well, in a sense, I only got like five Sacrifice Synergies. I was playing like two of the Sacrifice, a, a creature to play two 1-1s. One, I was playing I was playing the spell that gives a unit life steal and flying and you sacrifice it at the end of turn. I only had a single marsh dragon. I had no Nahid's Faithfuls. I had very few sacrifice synergies and a lot of them weren't good. And Mysterious Waystone did so much work in that deck. Cause you really only need to trigger this card a couple times and then just not die. And then you just win the game. And and when uh, and when we've talked about this in the past, uh, it, I I kind of if you have to compare it to another card, I actually compare it to the card Dread Hellkite, which was a card in the last set. Uh, it was a it was a four three dragon. It's a unit. It's a totally <laughs> different type of card, but it can't block. Um, and its entire purpose is to do four evasive damage every turn. Because um, yes. you can't play defense with it. And Mysterious Waystone doesn't play defense either. But in a sense, it does do evasive damage every turn. So it serves a very similar function. And and it kind of has a similar effect as a card that does evasive damage while you uh, maintain a board stall situation so that you don't die. Um, and there's enough incidental sacrifice in in this set because of the corrupted keyword that you don't even need to draft actual sacrifice cards to make the waystone playable because every rectifier you've got every blade crafter um has a sacrifice ability built into it yes and that actually got me one game where i died with my opponent on one life and i realized after the game that i that I had a shade on board that I could have sacrificed the turn before mm-hmm. to up this to, it would have actually in that case been five damage and it would have killed my opponent. But I just, I just didn't see it because it was one of those situations where I sort of just assumed I was dead. But in all of those games, it, it really impressed me for sort of what I expected it to be, which was a do nothing card. But the fact that you gain life, you do damage. There are so many different ways 
to trigger it and sort of keep upping the amount of damage. It's both, a, I think, a fun build around and a pretty powerful build around. Agree, and it's one of the it's one of the pleasant surprises about this set that cards like that can be playable. Yes, and it goes along sort of to relate it to Waystone, the fact that this format is sort of slow at this point allows you to play cards like this and be rewarded for it. Yeah. Which I think is fun. We'll see how the format develops, but so far it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, if people start taking advantage of the fact that uh, a lot of the decks are very slow and uh, and more aggressive or tempo-oriented decks become more popular, then maybe some of these strategies won't seem as good. But I have a feeling that that's never quite going to happen, where it shifts so far in that direction that you can't play fun decks anymore. I think they're going to continue to be powerful through the life of the format. Yes, and I agree, because... In the last few formats, there's always been people being like, oh, I've been having so much success with Rakano at the beginning of the format, and I have not sort of even been hearing whispers of <laughs> that kind of talk. Like, No, if the aggro people deck talking exists... About, sorry, of people talking about how they're punishing uh, people figuring out the format. Yeah, that's not happening to the same degree here. And if there is an aggro deck, it's not nearly as easy to draft as the Rakano Oni deck was last time. Yeah. All right. And sort of to move into a more practical analysis of this stuff, our seven win run breakdown. We have a long standing data collection project here at Farming Eternal where our listeners or people in the general Eternal community, they send us their <laughs> seven win drafts at farmingeternal at gmail.com where they post them to the seven win channel of the farming internal discord, where you can send in either exported deck lists or any kind of eternal war cry link. And then we take this information, we put it into a spreadsheet and we do some analysis of this, which we pass back to you guys. Um, and as always, we thank John Holio for entering all these lists. And then I read everyone's names. So here, here I go. Our new contributors this week are Double X Decade, I Just Work Here, and Psyduck, as well as our veteran contributors of Agent Dynamo, Ant-Man Rising, Beard Broken, Collector, Comet, Darth Herman 2, Alevi, Grandar, Hats on Lamps, Jedi EJ, Jose Carlos 2121, Cassandra, Mancio1982, Meagles, Mercurio Blue, Nether, Nothership, Patomaru, Raven Dragon, Rofer, Sluffer 13, SSJ1997, Sunblaze, Titus and Blossom, Vader, and Yam Yam. Um, yeah, so thank you all for sending in your deck lists, and please, please continue to send deck lists in. We have over 57 deck lists of the new format, which is pretty exciting. And we've been already seeing some pretty interesting trends. Some of these are fairly obvious. Like, for example, of all the deck lists we received, we are averaging exactly three colors per deck. So... Of the 57 decks, 43 of them are exactly three colors. Seven of them have been two colors, and seven of them have been four colors. Um, and we've actually, and I'm a little surprised by this, we've had zero five-color decks submitted so far. Hmm, that's um, interesting. Yeah. But yeah, so people are really leaning into the three-color nature. And it's interesting because... You know, there's no five-color decks, but I'm actually even surprised because there's so much fixing that four-color decks seem really possible in this format, but people are being disciplined, I guess. 
or or they're uh or they're drafting four color decks and uh and and it's hard to get to seven wins with a four color deck even with all of this fixing the deck just loses to itself enough times so that you can't yes. make that seven this also jives with my uh, of course very anecdotal uh record as well because i've had uh i've had six seven win decks since the beginning of the format all of them have been three colors Yes. Most of them just straight three colors, not even a concentration with a splash, but just a fixing that concentrates on those three colors. Um, and, and, and the colors are more or less equal. Yeah. And that's sort of been a trend. We've definitely gotten a lot of both, a lot of two color, you know, of those 43 three color decks, about half of them are two colors in a splash and about half of them are straight three color. So then as for the faction breakdown, this is probably the most uneven set we've ever had in one sense and the most even set in another sense. Primal, Shadow, Fire, and Justice are all about 40% of the decks. Time is about 80% of the decks. Of our 57 decks, 48 of them have time in them, which is an incredible percentage as compared to like primal only 30 of the decks have primal in them and that's about what it is for every other color so time is pretty close to 50 50 of the 57 decks and the other four colors are in about 30 of the 57 decks yeah uh, this not, this isn't surprising to me. I'm really glad that the other colors are so balanced uh, because usually it's not that way. Usually uh, primal and or fire are, are much worse than the other colors. But the fact we talked about this last time, the top time commons are so much better than the, the top uh, commons in any other faction. Yes. It's easy to get drawn into time in that first pack and, and have a hard time getting away from it. Between rectifier and uh and and humbug nest like there's a lot of reasons to just get into time uh at, at the beginning yes and what's really interesting and always you know i always never know whether it's like an artifact of the eternal draft system or whatever but the fact that time is so obviously powerful you know usually that's like a self-correcting mechanism and so then time is harder to get into because so many people are trying to get into time and so therefore time would should be more diluted and therefore sort of drop in its ratings and the i mean the format obviously has only been out for two weeks but the fact that not only is time obviously powerful but it's so dominant in the seven win decks that we're receiving means that either it's like so outrageously powerful that it's overwhelming sort of that dilution effect or people haven't quite figured it out yet that you should just like be drafting time because it will give you a winning deck uh maybe a little bit of column a a little bit of column b I'm not sure yeah. i'm still seeing some of the good time commons go go later than i expect them to you know, yes. I'll still get like a fifth pick rectifier or something, and it's hard to imagine a pack where it's correct to take four cards over rectifier. So uh, I think that some of that is happening. Um, and maybe as we get further into the set, 
uh, that will stop happening so much. It, it certainly became harder to pick up Grodov's favorites as people keyed into it in the last set. In this set, it should be even harder in a sense because the fixing is so much greater. So like, you know, like we said, there hasn't been a ton of four-color decks, but four-color decks are more possible in this format than the previous format. And so picking up just a couple rectifiers just to put in your already three-color deck is not impossible. Yeah, it's pretty easy. Also, you get cards in the... Like, even if you're just two colors at first, like, you'll see cards like Horn of Plenty in in packs two and three that will draw you back into time. You know, there's still some the really good time commons in the the draft packs uh, that are so easy to just sort of throw in your deck and make it better. Yeah, and then to go along with that are... Top two color pairs are Fire Time, so Praxis, and Time Justice, so the Combray colors. Yeah. Are sort of the the two colors that are working, are seen, the two color pairs that are seen in the most decks. And then as far as deck composition, the two decks, this doesn't, this doesn't account for splashes. But, so these are just like... Pro- primary color decks but the two most common are time primal so a lesion we have seven of the 57 decks are lesion decks and then seven of the 57 decks are fire time justice so those are our two most drafted archetypes in a sense and then there's a couple that are close the next tier is once again praxis has six as well as time justice primal and fire time shadow. Once again, time seems to be the key thing linking all of those together. Yeah, I would I would put I would put rectifier right in the middle of the the reason for that. Uh, time mm-hmm. has a lot of synergy here and there. Like you that, that those fire time shadow decks probably have a have some sacrifice synergy to them because sacrifice synergy tends to be pretty good in this format. If you play the strongest cards in that general archetype, uh, and and uh, you've got some nice relic synergy in in the Elysian deck, uh, and sometimes flyer synergy there, uh, so there's a lot of reasons to be in Elysian. And then the uh, the sort of more armory color, the fire justice time uh, time helps with that as well because you have the recursion from cards like disjunction and turn back time, which helps out the relic weapon deck a lot. But you wouldn't need time to make any of those decks work, but having Rectifier to take care of all of your opposing problems at the same time that you're building all of this synergy with your other cards is just so strong. It deals with practically anything. Yeah, and I think in a lot of these combinations, you know, like Time Justice Primal, which is supposed to be like your highest cost relic, um, which actually ironically we're going to talk about a little bit later but i've drafted like a time justice primal deck it was just like all of those colors have good cards like time has great cards primal has great cards you can especially in the uncommon slot you can find some really good justice cards and then just draft a good deck not even focusing on the synergies so a lot of this makes sense to me like all of these faction pairs they have time which is a which is just a great color, even ignoring synergies. And Primal also just has some really great commons right now. So it's really hard to like figure out if like 
these faction combinations are doing well because of the synergies that they're sort of trying to support or whether all of these time-based decks are doing well just because of the card quality. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, like our, our main topic is to talk about uh, why relics work in this format. And, yes. and I think that's part of it, is the synergies in this set feel better to draft because there's fewer cards that rely on them. There's more cards that benefit from synergies, but are playable on their own, rather than having cards that don't feel good if you don't have the synergy to go with them. Yes. And I think a prime example of that is like Book Club Yeti. Yeah, very much so. Where you're just like, I'm happy to play a 3-1 for 2, and then sometimes I get to sacrifice that for free and just kill an enemy unit, any yeah. unit I want. Uh, Book Club Yeti has an ability... Uh, where it can sacrifice itself to do damage to an enemy unit equal to the highest cost relic that you have in play. So yeah. it scales with the size of relics that you are playing and can turn into a really effective removal spell um, on the turn that you play a relic sometimes. Yeah, and unlike cards like Honeypot, which require you to have the relic in play already, you know, Book Club Yeti can wait for your relic to show up. Yeah, it can trade in combat like any other 3-1. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a playable card with or without the synergy and then becomes an amazing card if you do have the synergy. Yeah, so like I, I said, I'm really excited. So far, um, you know, there's a lot of two-color decks showing up. There's a lot of three-color decks showing up, which is really great. And then cool. it'll be interesting to see if time sort of comes down to earth and the other factions can pick up or whether... This sort of stays constant throughout the format. I really can't imagine that time stays at 80% of the decks. That seems untenable, but we already have 57 decks, which is not nothing. And it's amazing how much time is sort of creeping in there. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Maybe people will just start getting bored and <laughs> start trying to draft other things. Yeah, but it's really hard to get bored rectifier. I it think. is. Yeah, it's tough, but I have had I've had a couple of seven win decks that weren't time myself. So uh, yeah, interestingly, no. my winning decks reflect almost exactly the overall trends. <laughs> so, like, I think I have two decks that didn't include time in them that were seven win decks out of the six. So you know, pretty close. Yeah, one of my my I don't forget if I have one or two, but definitely one of my decks didn't have time because, like I said, I've been for some reason ending up in justice primal shadow a lot all right shall we move on to the main topic let's do uh so yeah i wanted to talk about drafting relics uh, uh in particular because this is not the first time that direwolf has tried to push drafting relics as a theme and uh the last time we saw a strong relic theme in a draft environment was uh three sets ago in defiance uh set five had uh as the major theme for the time primal shadow combination uh some kind of relic synergy and i think everyone who was drafting during set five can probably agree that relics was not fun to draft <laughs> it, it was, was a, tough it was tough it was weak and it was um it was frustrating because a lot of the cards that you needed in order to make the decks work were uncommons and so you couldn't count on seeing them 
And a lot of times you would try to get into the deck because you would get one of those uncommons and then you wouldn't see any of the commons that you needed. And so uh, it wasn't a fun thing to do. Uh, a lot of good drafters were able to draft really good relic decks, but uh, it was hard uh, and it didn't feel like a fun thing to do, especially compared to like the swarm decks and the renowned decks and other options that you had during that set. Uh, and so I wanted to look at like what was going on in set five and what they changed for this set to make it so much more fun. Um, and and it's interesting because they didn't change that much. The payoffs back in set five were okay. You had cards like Akantha Outrider, which was a six power three three flyer in Primal. Uh, but it only cost three if you had a, a relic under your control. That's pretty good. You don't really want to play it if you don't have relic synergy, because that's pretty expensive for a 3-3 flyer. But yeah, it's pretty good if you do. Um, and then you had Sirocco Glider, which is a four power 2-5, uh, and that just gets flying if you happen to have a relic. Again, fine. Uh, you could play that without any relics in your deck, and it was okay, although 2-5 is never exciting. Then you had cards like Consuming Greed, which was a 4-power 2-1 flyer. And if you sacrificed a relic when you played it, it also made a huge ground unit. I think it was a 6-4. Uh, you wouldn't play that without relics in your deck at all. And the weird part, and we're going to talk about this later, is unlike in this set, there were not really any relics that benefited from being sacrificed. No, there were not. Uh, a, in order to make Consuming Greed work, you had to play a relic that you were not really planning to do anything with, yeah. leave it around for a couple of turns, then kill it. And it's good getting a, uh, getting your big ground pounder out of that situation, uh, but it's not great. You know, Consuming Greed was a really good card when it went off, but it it was it felt so bad in your hand if you couldn't draw one of the handful of relics in your deck uh, in order to make it work because a two one flyer for four is not good and uh, and also <laughs> like <laughs> the fact that you would have to play a relic and then just get no benefit from it uh, because you were planning to sacrifice it made it feel like you were kind of wasting a lot of slots in your deck. Yes. And then you had Honeypot, which was the only card. Uh, I, no, it wasn't the only card, but what was one of the only cards that cared how big your or expensive your relics were. Uh, and that was a pretty good one. Uh, it did. It was a two-power spell, a fast spell uh, in Elysian colors that dealt one damage to anything plus the cost of your highest cost relic. That's not a great spell if you don't have a relic in play, but it gets really good once you have a relic in play. Um, and then, of course, Tumbling Sloth, which was a three-color uh, Aurelian 3-4 uh, that got ambushed when you had a relic. That's just a good card. The payoffs were okay. There's nothing on that list that's, like, dramatically good. And the ones that are better, like Consuming Greed and Honeypot, really needed relics in order to be playable. The other part of that synergy uh, is the relics. And they sucked. They sucked so bad. <laughs> Well, that's that was, why it was easy to sacrifice them to Consuming Greed. It certainly was. You wouldn't miss them. <laughs> All of the common relics were bad, except possibly with the uh, exception of Arachidon Egg. Um, but they were cards like Astromancer's Compass, uh, which was a colorless, uh, uh, one-cost uh, relic that, that you, where you could pay two once per turn to give a unit plus one, plus one. They were Frost Talisman, which was a two-cost uh, relic that stunned an enemy unit 
when it came into play. And then much, much later, you could pay seven to draw a card. There was or 14 to draw two cards. Don't indeed. That. We can't forget that. That makes the card much, much better. <laughs> and Frost Talisman was actually one of the better ones. Like in the relic decks that worked in draft, Frost Talisman was actually a good card. It delayed yeah. the game by a turn, and then later it draws cards. Uh, it didn't feel good to play it, but it was one of the better ones. But then you had Spitfire, which was a four-cost relic, and you could pay four to do one damage. And yes, you could pay eight to do two damage. But man, that's a bad card. So bad by itself. Even if you were in um, the, even if you were in the relic deck, you didn't want to play Spitfire. Plus. It was in fire, so it wasn't in the relic colors. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so plus a couple of relic weapons, mostly in shadow. Uh, that's it, like at common. So you would have to hope for uncommon relics, and those weren't that much better. Yeah, and what's really interesting about this list, too, a thing to note, is that, you know, cards like Honeypot and there was the uncommon Elysian card the 5-5 um, five, five for 8 that got bigger and had Killer and Pledge yeah. based on your highest relic. Those cards liked expensive relics. And a lot of these relics are not only bad, but they're very cheap yes. and don't synergize with one whole aspect of the relic's synergy from set 5. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's like they had some good ideas for how to make uh, drafting relics interesting and limited and then just didn't put them all in the set you know like they had like let's put the all of this stuff in uh but let's not like actually match the potential with the cards that we're printing um and so we're seeing now the the payoff for that because a lot of those cards are in the draft packs now and they're much more playable because the overall situation for drafting relics is better Notably, they did not reprint Consuming Greed because <laughs> it wouldn't be great in this format because you want your relics to stick around in this format because they're playable. So that leads us into the question, what is different in set eight? Um, the payoffs are at least as good as they were before, uh, and but there's not very many of them, but it makes a big difference. We already talked about Book Club Yeti. It's a playable two, uh, three, one for two on its own, but then it becomes a really good removal spell. Rage Heart Paladin is a uh, uh, five justice justice unit. It's a four two with life steal. It has plus health based on the highest cost of uh, on the based on the large the cost of the largest relic that you have. I couldn't even repeat it. <laughs> uh, anyway, Rage Heart Paladin uh, is playable as a, a five power four two life steal. Not great, but it becomes so dominating if you have even a two-cost relic. Like a five-cost 4-4 four, four lifesteal, terrific. Um, but it's often much better because there's a lot of playable five-cost relics in this format. And then it's a 4-7 lifesteal and your opponent never attacks again. Yeah, and what's interesting, and this hasn't been true of a lot of the relic synergies so far, is a rage, the Rage Heart Paladin is a dynamic effect. It's yeah. not a summon effect. So in early early in the game, well, I mean, it's turn five no matter what, probably, unless you have a Magnificent Stranger. But, you know, on turn five, it might be a 4-2 lifesteal. 
you play a two cost relic, it's now a four four lifesteal, but later you draw your five cost relic and suddenly it turns into a four seven. So yes. it scales in that sense with the game because as you draw more expensive relics, it continues to grow. And it has that in common with a lot of good playable commons in limited because scaling is so important. You don't want to top deck one of your cheap cards that doesn't scale. And uh, you don't want to top deck anything that doesn't scale, really, because you want to be making relevant plays at every phase of the game. Rage Heart Paladin is just a good example of a common that scales super well. Uh, you, of course, it can get silenced by Rectifier or whatever, or removed by a removal spell. Um, but uh, yes. that's true of any card. And uh, it, its uh, its fail state isn't bad, and then its uh, its win state is is fantastic. And uh, Book Club Yeti scales well. Monument Creator is very similar to Rage Heart Paladin because it has a static effect that uh, it's a it's a a a one one for two injustice that gets plus attack and health based on the highest cost of your of of, of relic that you have in play. Um, so it's very similar to Rage Heart Paladin, but very efficiently costed and totally again dominates the board when it's on. Uh, when it, as soon as you play a relic of any size, even if you play a two-cost relic, it's a three-three for two, and it's already attacking. So, so you add that to the handful of payoffs for playing relics uh, in the draft packs that they brought over from set five, and that's enough to make playing relics feel really good. Uh, it only takes a handful of cards. Because as you were saying, uh, just drafting those colors, you're probably going to get enough playables. But then you have uh, sprinkled throughout your deck these cards that get crazy good if you can manage to assemble the synergy. That feels a lot better than cards that rely on synergy to be playable. That's the major shift that they did. They printed good cards that become great instead of bad cards that become good. And this list continues, you know, like the cards you just mentioned, like Book Club Yeti, right? That's a two cost three one that deals damage based on your largest relic if you needed to. Compare that to Honey Pop, which is a two color card that's two cost and deals one plus the cost of your highest cost relic. So you never get early game. That's a totally useless card as compared to Book Club Yeti which at least you can play on turn two as a 3-1. You know, Honeypot is sort of a card you never want early because you need to wait for your relics for it to do anything. And it's really interesting when you go through, when you start like looking at the relics or cards that produce relic. Like there's the Platinum Kirin, which is the 1-2 for 2 time card with flying. And Mastery 2, you create and draw Eternity Core. Right. So this is a small flyer for two that creates an eternity core, which is a four cost relic, which goes great with expensive relic matter cards as compared to set five, where you had to pay three time for one, two flying. And it created an ancient bauble, which was a one cost relic, which is not great when you have cards that care about your highest costing relic. And so I feel like as we go through this list, you're just like, wow, all of the cards in set five were just upgraded <laughs> for, yeah. This, for yeah, this set. Yeah, pretty much. Um, yeah, uh, 
so let's take let's take a look at the relics that we have access to now. We have siege provisions. Uh, we talked about that last week, but I am firmly in the camp now that siege provisions is a good common that you should take pretty high and play. Yes, I agree. It was not in my top three list, and I was very skeptical in the last episode. And this is a card that in this past week I have changed my mind on. Yeah, it's very impressive. I think everyone probably went through that process of discovery on it because, it, again, it doesn't really resemble other cards that we've been able to play in Limited before. Uh, it's similar to a couple of them, but we never had one actually be good before. Uh, it's right. a two-cost... Uh, it's a, it's a two it costs two justice. It's a relic. Um, it has a spellcraft. When it comes into play, make one of your units invulnerable f uh, for this turn. Uh, and then its ongoing effect is that you can pay three once per turn to give one of your units plus two, plus two, and endurance. Uh, so it's essentially like a weapon that you can keep moving around. Uh, it doesn't come with the, the card disadvantage that weapons come with, where if a unit gets killed by a removal spell, you're, the weapon goes away. It sticks around and you can continue using it. And because it has endurance, you can attack with a powerful unit each turn without losing a blocker. So it just ends up being a pretty strong card. Yes, it's. I think the endurance is a really key part of that because yeah. in some of the decks that I've had... Uh, a sort of a play pattern that happened often, I would use Siege Provision on a unit that was smaller than my opponent's unit, but I had another unit on board. So I would just make one of my units bigger than my opponent's unit, attack in, and then it would have Endurance, so then it would be ready to block. And so I always kept the double block, the potential double block up against my opponent's units. Yeah. And so it makes these like boards of two, two strangers or whatever, a lot more menacing because you can attack in to their three, three with your two, two, because it's now a four, four, but still have four power left to block to double block. So they actually can't crack back. Right. It, it puts your opponent into one bad combat situation after another because their choice is either to like double block and then like trade their three drop for your two drop that you've buffed that turn or just let it through and just continue taking damage every turn without being able to, um, to attack back successfully. It's a very well-named card because it feels like siege provisions. <laughs> it feels like you're surrounding a castle and you have access to food and weaponry while the castle is cut off. That's, it's one of the best, it's one of the most flavorful cards that they've ever printed, <laughs> as well as being a surprisingly good card to play in draft. So thumbs up on siege provisions. And so what are some other common relics? Tainted Mark, that's the five uh, five primal relic. Uh, it says whenever a unit deals damage to the... It's a cursed relic. Whenever a unit deals damage to the cursed, uh, cursed player, you draw a card. Uh, that's obviously very good with evasive units. Um, also, uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, it's good with uh, the curse that comes from uh, comes from the Griffin um, that causes your opponent's unit to deal damage to them uh, because that takes place on your opponent's turn. So um, you can draw a card off of that on their turn, and then you can draw a card off of it on your turn when you attack with your flyer. Uh, I, I was skeptical about this card when I first saw it because in order to pay for it to be a good card, you kind of need to draw probably three cards off of it. But it turns out that it's surprisingly easy to draw three cards off of it, 
with stuff like uh, Humbug Nest, like throwing tokens into the air, uh, ways of giving things like unblockable, uh, just the sheer number of flyers and, and ways to kind of push flyers through, y- you can end up drawing quite a few cards off of it. And I think that almost undersells it because what's really, I think, hard to realize at first is you don't need to draw three cards off of it because like we've been talking about with like book club yeti there's just a lot of other good synergies with relics and so hey if you with your tainted mark draw two cards deal six damage to something and kill your opponent you're doing pretty good even if you haven't gotten like full value from your tainted mark Uh, yeah exactly so um and the fact that it is in the same faction as Book Club Yeti and also things like Brood of Aramot, like just strong flyers, Plagued Griffin, uh, means that you'll pro- you'll almost certainly get the cards that go with Tainted Mark if you want one. I probably wouldn't play more than one in a deck still, just because uh, it doesn't do anything on its own, but it's so good with the other cards that I kind of always want one if I'm playing Primal. And then there's a bunch of good cheap uh, fire relic weapons, uh, and a couple of expensive, very good weapons in Fire and Justice. Uh, and then, of course, Platinum Cure, and like we were talking about. That's not a lot of cards total, but again, uh, they're all good on their own, and then they're great if you come up with Synergy, uh, which is so much better than the Set 5 philosophy of terrible on their own, but good if you can assemble the Synergy. Yes, And this is just the common relics, and we didn't really discuss them for set five, but I also think just the uncommon relics in this set are just, there's so many playable ones. You know, we mentioned two of them in Card of the Week. There's also another one of those, like, it likes to be destroyed on your turn, the bottled something or other in Primal that you can pay three to deal one damage and then draw three cards with it after... Yeah, bottled, use. bottled Storm. Bottled Storm is great. Um, yes. I've played it in a couple of decks, and it's super playable. Yeah. Uh, it just sits around causing damage, preventing your opponent from playing entire cards because they don't want them to be pinged to death, uh, and then draws you three cards. Great. Yeah. And in the so, meantime, while it's still on the board, it's activating these Relic Synergies that we've been talking about. Um, and also, there's those uh, there's all there's those three two cost relics that are sort of build around cards. There's uh, there's the one in Elysian that gives plus one plus one to flyers, and then tutors a flyer out of your deck on six, which is crazy. <laughs> there's the dragon one that gives you spell damage and makes all of your dragons cheaper. There's uh, the weapon one that gives you plus one power and gives plus one to all of your weapons. Uh, those are all super playable. Activate all of these relic synergies. Um, and uh, and then there's uh, the big like showstopper cards like Shugo's Hooked Sword, which is a seven power, uh, double fire, relic weapon. Uh, it's a seven five. Every time you do damage with it, you create and uh, play a a two two Oni Grunt. Uh, if anyone, if you've ever played or with or against Shugo's Hooked Sword, you know it is not something to be trifled with. It's super good. What's really interesting, I think this is sort of the the secret sauce of why relics are so good is that now because this is set eight and so we've had set five we have the draft packs now and they can include the actual good stuff from set five relics yes and relic matter cards and so now and we've harped about this 
so many times in the previous set, um, the last, actually the last two sets, is synergies that are fully supported in the draft packs are just so much better than synergies that require you to only, that require just the new set. Yes. And this has happened time and time again. And the fact that we've had a Relic Matter set allows these Relic decks to really take advantage of the fact that you're getting synergies in all four packs. Uh, yeah, I think they did a good job with it. Uh, also, I think just in general, the way they've designed the draft packs this time, uh, other than the complicated rarities and the sheer number of cards in the draft packs, which is kind of a separate issue, but the cards that they have pushed so that we run into them the most often, I think are designed leagues better than the last set. I think it makes a huge difference in how fun this set is to draft when you know you're going to get four cards, uh, four packs full of playable cards instead of just two. So are there any relics that you want to highlight in these in the draft packs? Yeah, and they're all in time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is another reason why time is good is because three of the strongest uh, relics uh, are, are in time. I guess two of the strongest relics and another playable relic, really. Horn of Plenty is a big deal. A Horn of Plenty is at its absolute best that it's ever been because uh, there's a playable go-wide strategy in the sort of sacrifice deck. And uh, I guess it's mostly a sacrifice deck, but making those corrupted units b bigger and the few tokens that you have access to bigger is very good. Also, it's a five-cost uh, relic, so it activates yes. all the stuff that we've been talking about. Super good with Book Club Yeti. Utterly dominating if it, if it makes Rage Heart Paladin into a 5-8. <laughs> <laughs> it's... I hope I got that right. It's absurd. It's a large thing once you have a Horn of Plenty out. Uh, another one is Wormstone. Wormstone is now, if you never manage to activate it and make the 7-7 seven, seven and, and send the Relic into the Void, it's still sitting around providing benefits. Really good. Uh, and then Wilderness Refuge, which, as we learned in the last set, is a perfectly fine card. It ramps you from 3 to 5, and sometimes it can bounce something and make uh, make it unplayable for a few turns uh, so it's still playable. Um, if you happen to be in a Relic deck, then it's something that you might want to throw in there. And I'm including that one without having actually seen that happen in this draft format. I just figure since it was a marginally playable card in the last uh, set, it probably still is now. Also, I've played Wilderness Refuge in a deck with the, uh, with the, with the uh, Time Uncommon. Uh, that is a, uh, it's a 3-1 Overwhelm for two. And it reduces your spellcraft or um, activation costs for your relics by three. And so you can play the 2-1 on turn two and then a Wilderness Refuge plus the bounce effect on turn three. And that's, you're going to win that game. <laughs> <laughs> so the upshot of this, and I'm going to keep on coming back to this theme, is they didn't print a lot more relic synergy in this set than they did in set five. But the slight shift in philosophy um, that they put into play here, uh, again, making uh, making good playable cards that become great with synergy rather than bad cards that become good with relic synergy, plus all of the resources that they had from set five where they siphoned off most of the worst stuff and just reprinted um, and boosted in, in, in rarity uh, the, the better cards from uh, set five mean that relics are now not only a much more fun type of thing to draft, but probably the most powerful thing to draft. 
because you can draft a good deck and then have a little relic synergy package in your deck, um, which pushes your deck from being strong to being a seven win uh, powerful deck. And uh, the shift in my thinking from the beginning of the format where I was kind of losing a lot to where I am now, where I'm generally winning again, is that I have synergy packages in my deck instead of uh, some kind of synergy reliance where I'm drafting everything around a theme. Um, if you think of like your, your deck as being pretty much a, a, like a functional entity um, that has individual organs, and like one of these organs is like your kidney and that's your relic synergy. And then like you've got your like stomach over here and that's maybe like a blade crafter package where you can go get some relic weapons. Maybe you've got three relic weapons and one blade crafter, but it's like a self-sufficient package of good solid playable cards over there that are supporting your overall deck. That for me, like that shift in my thinking uh, has has made me much more successful. And I have, a, I have another example for this, if you'll permit me. Uh, I drafted a dragon deck early on in this, in this mm -hmm. set, which was a fire primal shadow deck. And I thought it was great. It had a ton of spell damage stuff and then some really good cards that benefit from spell damage. Bunch of dragons. It had two spellbound vestiges in it that make all my dragons cost one less and then give your spells plus one damage while you have a dragon. Uh, it looked great. It had a, a ridiculous rares. It went 1-3. And part of that is variance, because uh, maybe I came up against some tough opponents. But I drafted an almost identical deck a few days later that instead of going all in on spell damage and dragons, instead had little packages of synergy, like some dragons. I had access to two spellbound vestiges, but only played one. It had uh, a couple of those Ruinous Bursts, which is a one-power fire spell that does one damage to two different enemies, which is a playable spell by its own, but it gets a lot better really fast if you have spell damage effects. And that deck went seven wins because it was little packages of synergy, little package of spell damage synergy, little package of dra dragon synergy, another blade crafter package, and that deck was great because it wasn't all in on a single synergy. And I think that may be one of the keys to drafting this format um, is, is drafting synergy packages instead of feeling like your entire deck has to be focused around one theme. I agree. And I think one of the things that allows this, and I, for me personally, I feel like this is one of the first sets to really do this, is because a lot of these synergy cards have a, a good base rate, you're not forced to go all in on them. Even if you pick up a couple book club yetis, you don't have to draft just like mono relics after that. You know, you can be like, oh, I have a couple bookcraft yetis, I have a couple relics, and that's a good enough package that as long as the rest of my deck is functioning will give me some value early and then possibly really pay me off later. And, you know, this current draft that I was talking about in my how my draft week went was very similar where, you know, I ha I picked up I got a Majestic Skies. So I I picked that up because it's a strong card. I put some flyers. They're good on their own in that deck. And then I also had this. Um, and then since I was at Elysian, I played a crown of possibilities because we can all agree random battle skills are great. We can all and agree then, upon that. <laughs> And then I also had this sort of other sacrifice theme, and they mix too, you know, because with my Flyers theme, I had Humbug Ness. But Humbug Ness also give you multiple units. 
to fuel my sacrifice themes. And so I, you know, this deck, you know, in one sense has like a lot sort of all these disparate parts and all of these things going on, but there's just all of these little keys, key ways where they have these packages of synergy. And then those synergies even overlap a little bit, not even totally intentionally, but it ends up making like a very good deck. And all of those cards are just like more or less good on their own. And I, like I just said, like, it feels like this is one of the first sets where that has felt true. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, I mean, time will tell uh, how how this set goes down in sort of the history of draft environments. For But I like a lot of what they did here. Um, I mm -hmm. think it's a big step forward in a lot of ways uh, for these exact reasons. All right, and so to conclude this segment, and uh, as an aside, we you don't have this in the show notes, but so practically speaking, what what would lead you into a relic deck? What are we looking for to start a draft that says, hmm, I think I'm going to try to put this relic package into my deck? Usually it's going to be one of the relics, I would say. I would say cards like Edge of Prophecy um, and uh, the two power relics uh, the, that we were talking about that are strong on a theme. Maybe not the dragon one. It takes a little bit of a commitment. Um, but but certainly certainly the one that gives plus one plus one to flyers and cards like Waystone Gate and the Bottled Storm, just having a few strong relics would make me value cards like Book Club Yeti and uh, and Rage Heart Paladin a lot higher. And then uh, before I know it, I've got a little bit of a package there. Uh, I think it usually starts relics first. Okay. Um, but there are so many uh, playable relics that I think you probably end up with a little bit of relic synergy anytime you're playing the right colors for it. So yes. it's not so much an archetype of deck in my mind right now as a strong element to a lot of uh, decks that are generally pretty powerful. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say because I almost feel like for me it's slightly the opposite like obviously if i pick up a waystone gate i'm very happy to pick up a waystone gate and i might pick up some relic synergies to back that up but i've been picking up book club yeti pretty early but also getting them pretty late because i feel like people are still undervaluing them and then because i have book club yetis i've been taking relics more highly and that feels for me the way i've been sort of adding these like relic synergies into the deck uh, and I think that actually is another thing that speaks well of the format, too, is that um, you can go either way, and those are both viable approaches. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just sort of been my experience. Uh, it doesn't count the deck that I played on, on Wednesday, which was devoted to being an armory deck and had a lot of relic weapons and ways to recur them and was absolutely primarily a synergy deck. Although I'm really glad that you, that a deck that crazy and lopsided is also a very, very strong deck. Uh, but that's not going to happen all that often. I got a couple of really good rares for that deck to support it. Um, and if you have one, well, the showpiece, the center of that deck was of Prophecy, which is the seven power fire time justice relic weapon that doubles in size whenever you play it. It starts as a 3-3, three, three, um, but functionally it's a 6-6 six, six when you first play it, and if you bring it back, then it doubles in size. And uh, I had two Blade Crafters in that deck, so I drew it every game. 
because Bladecrafter would go get it if I needed it. And the fact that you can play a deck that's tutoring for your one giant relic weapon in every de- in every game and you win seven games with that uh, means that sometimes you're going to be able to draft very strong synergy decks around a single uh, uh, concept, and that's going to be powerful. So I think the baseline where you've got these nice packages of synergy uh, is where most good decks are going to be, and that's great. But also that there's this possibility of really going hard on synergy and and having it work out sometimes. That deck really showed me another thing. Bladecrafter really makes Sky King Storyteller a much more exciting card. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I hadn't really considered that particular synergy until I saw you sort of. Well, I guess I mostly saw your chat wanting you to go for that line. Yeah, a few times, and I don't think it ever actually happened. Yeah, uh, more than you actually did, because you were usually winning by the time you could do that line anyway. Yeah, so it was never, never it. worth it. But like we keep talking about, there's these like really interesting pockets pockets of synergy where like Bladecrafter, not that bad of a card on its own. Sky King Storyteller, not a great card. You know, I, you know, and we talked about this last week, it's like not a card that I was particularly excited about, but it's by no means a bad card. But you put those two commons together and you suddenly have like a very powerful synergy going. All right. And so the next thing we're going to just do is I just wanted to quick do a, a, a rehash and see if you've changed your sort of pick orders for your top commons. Great. I haven't thought here. about this. So let's let's take a look. All right, so last week you said your top fire commons were Fury Blade, Blade Crafter, and Burning Core Drake. Are you feeling pretty good about that order still? Is uh, Fury Blade your first pri- or first fire card that you're picking up? No, I'd put Blade Crafter ahead of it now. Okay. Yeah, Blade Crafter has gotten better in my estimation now. Uh, I think that you can pick one up early, uh, and then every time you see something like Shugo's Hooked Sword or Edge of Prophecy, or any of the other powerful re- relic weapons. Uh, also, just, uh, like, if you get some some random thing like a Sodi Spell Shaper or one of the other really killer rare web- weapons that you can get in this uh, format, uh, Bladecrafter tutors them up, too. Uh, so I think it's a I think it's generally going to be a really strong card. That you can overdose on blade crafters. Like you probably don't want to play more than two of them, um, depending on how many weapons that you have to search out. Uh, but I like having one in my decks because they generate just so much value. Yes, I agree. Uh, you know, this didn't even make my top three, and that was definitely wrong. I have not played a blade crafter yet, but it has consistently outperformed when I've seen it played. And then I would probably put Fury Blade afterwards. I still think it's a really solid removal card. And with the Relic Recursion in this set, uh, it's also kind of a versatile thing to have in your Void. And then Burning Core Drake after that. I'd be pretty comfortable with that lineup. Yeah, no, I, I can get behind that. So Blade Crafter 1, Fury Blade 2, and then Burning Core Drake 3. So time, time we agreed with last week. We said Rectifier 1, Humbug Nest 2, and Magnificent Stranger 3. I don't have any reason to change that, really. Uh, I th- uh, Humbug Nest is still a strong card, even if it's not as impressive as I originally thought it would be. Still a good, solid card. Uh, no yes. reason not to play it. Uh, it. It goes well with flyers. It goes well with token strategies. And Magnificent Stranger is still a very good card. Uh, just the fact that it's a 2-3 for 2 is already pretty good. Um, but its effect 
is so good. And also, uh, it looks like if you have a zero cost, like if you have a zero cost card on the top of your deck, perhaps because Magnificent Stranger has already reduced its cost, uh, it'll reduce the cost of the next card down. So it like the effect like filters down through your deck, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think I I still stand behind our numbers. Pretty much Rectifier, Humbug Nest, Magnificent Stranger, but sort of like you, I don't know if I'm necessarily, if Humbug Nest has gone down in my estimation so much as Magnificent Stranger has moved up and gotten much closer to Humbug Nest than it was where I was last week. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you have you to know, play with Magnificent Stranger a little bit to realize how, how busted it is. The fact that it can attack sort of on turn two into your opponent's two twos and get that first hit has been very impressive. Oh, that does actually remind me. Covetous Strangers still doesn't make your top three? No, I think it's close. Probably number four. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I would still take a Burning Core Drake over it in, in a pack where I didn't know what direction my deck was taking yet. The thing that I hadn't really thought about last week was the fact that even if you suicide your Covetous Stranger in... It's sort of replacing itself. So its ability actually was more powerful than I think I I was appreciating when I first read it. Because I was like, oh, this is never attacking it. But at the same time, even if it attacks in and dies and does a little something, helps you in some little way, you're still getting your card back. And that's, that's true. That's not that bad. Uh, no, and maybe maybe I'll feel differently about it at, um, as time goes on. But for right now, it's it's small for its cost, and I feel like sometimes you're just kind of spinning your wheels if you attack the a two if you suicide it and then draw a card. All right, so justice justice was is sort of the problem child. Um, so last week uh, you had dive bomb siege provisions and then sky king storyteller. Yeah, and I'm confident in having dive bomb on the top still. Uh, I think people we'll start playing around it, but its raw power is still so high that I think it's the best green common. And I would put Siege Provisions second a lot more confidently than I did last week now. I think it's great. Um, the third, well, that's probably Rage Heart Paladin now. That's gone way up in my estimation. Okay. Yeah, I can I can see that. I, I, I still feel bad. I, <laughs> picking Rage Heart Paladin as yep. number three. I know. I just feel like there's like a bunch of medium options at number three. We yeah, kind of talked about this last week. I am now in agreement with you on your number one and two. I do think Dive Bomb and Siege Provision sort of stand out. And there's a whole bunch of sort of mediocre options. You know, a bunch of people are really into the 1-1 one, one double damage guy that gives minus one to all the flyers. And... I'm still not very high on that card. It does not excite me. Um, I haven't I haven't had um, good experiences with it so far. I mean, this is just entirely anecdotal, but I can only t- I'm really I can really only go by my own experiences with cards, and uh, and Willbreaker has not done a lot for me. And part of that is that there aren't very many unit weapons in the format, so it's harder to take advantage of the double damage thing. Yes, uh, it's not impossible. Certainly, you can like. Uh, have an unblocked will breaker suddenly do 10 damage because you put a wind con- uh, wind conjuring on it or something. Um, but I, that doesn't seem to be relevant that often. And the minus one curse on the flyers 
isn't as relevant as you would think it would be in a format with so many flyers. I find that it's very difficult to get an advantage off of that that often. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's a bad card, still a playable card. Anything with Corrupted is playable. Um, mm -hmm. but uh, And there's going to be situations where you neuter your uh, opponent's entire flying army, and, uh, and it's good. But so far, I haven't... I haven't it doesn't seem like a card that draws me into justice at all. I just haven't yes. had great experiences with it yet. And that's where I'm at. And I just wanted to, to point that one out specifically because I do know pe some people are, it is a draw into justice. Yeah. Um, all right. So then primal, we said last week, and we we're both in agreement on this brood of Aramot biting winds and then book club Yeti. I'm still, I'm still probably good with that. I think Root of Aramot may not be an exciting card, but it's still super solid. Just a 3-3 flyer for 4 is just something that you're going to play in your deck. Um, I've certainly had games where people have played a bunch of Root of Aramots, and I just had no answer for that entire horde of dragons, and I lost. And what really stands out to me is all three of these cards I would be happy to first pick. Primal's in a good pay place. And then finally, Shadow, you had Triumphant Return number 1, Entranced Cultist number two and Felrocks Infiltrator number three. You know, I'm not going to have a strong opinion on this again. Uh, I, I still think Triumphant Return is the best common. I'm never unhappy to get something back and make it an even bigger problem. Even for three, I still think it's a, a quality card and there's a lot of good reasons to bring units back and play them again. But uh, the other two commons, like Shadow just doesn't have anything that's overwhelmingly good. So it's going to depend on the synergy that you have. And so far, still, I, have a, I haven't been incredibly impressed with Felrock's Infiltrator. Uh, again, very anecdotal, just my personal experiences. Um, but in a vacuum, it still seems like uh, a card that doesn't do any one thing really well. But if you have the right cards to go with it, can sometimes be really powerful. I would put Triumphant Return number one now and then i think i would switch with you felrock's infiltrator and entrance cultist i think i would take felrock's infiltrator number two and then entrance cultist number yeah that's three. fair i'm not even sure that entrance cultist should be in the top three honestly but there's not really anything else in shadow that is better yeah shadow's doing yeah shadow and justice are doing sort of a great primal impression this format it doesn't make them bad factions to play, though. They're still balanced with the other factions, but their commons are weaker than we're used to. Shadow has some really, really strong uncommons. And like I've said, I've drafted a lot of Shadow decks uh, in this format and have done uh, fairly well. So, and it is kind of funny because anytime I look at the Shadow commons, I'm like, how did I end up in Shadow? Uh-huh. Yeah. But for... For some reason, it keeps being open, and you can still get good cards. And there are good cards that sort. I mean, I okay, maybe they're not great cards, but you know, they're cards that play well with each other. And then if you have a couple good uncommons too, you know, you sort of have yourself a deck. Yeah, you've got some pretty good payoffs if you have kind of a theme going uh, with your other cards. You know, like Spore Spitter, which is this uh, six shadow shadow four four with pledge. Uh, it gets lifesteal and unblockable while the enemy player has 10 or more cards in their void. Like, you're going to want to pick that up if you happen to have some kind of a mill deck going. It's a nice payoff. Uh, yes. But you're not going to pick it up high, but it's super good in a mill deck. 
Um, and like Skeletal Dragon is playable if you have any kind of dragon synergy going, or like, you know, if you triumphant return a Skeletal Dragon, suddenly it's a very, 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 very good card. So if you have enough support for it, it goes from kind of a, a an annoying card to have in your deck to being pretty good. Switchblade Deadeye uh, is the 2-1 for 2 that gets plus 2, plus 2 when it has a battle skill. You'll reach sort of a threshold of cards that can activate it that suddenly make it a, a good card. There's a lot of cards like that in Shadow, which is where we're used to seeing Primal, where Primal has a bunch of cards that are like, until you have enough cards that make them good. That's where Shadow is now. So I think we're going to end the show there. I think this was a pretty pretty, act- uh, pretty good show, a lot of content. So I uh, hope everyone enjoys it. And once again, a thank you to all of our patrons for making the show a success. And for those of you who are not patrons, a reminder to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can join us in our Discord. There's a link in the show notes below the podcast, wherever you find podcasts. And finally, thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts about the about the show. It really helps, I think, get new people to find the show. And if you leave a comment, I think that helps really promote the show so all any comments or anything like that are really appreciated and don't forget to send in all your seven win deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com and especially if they're not time and remember <laughs> to keep on farming bye have a good night have a great night all right cool i think we crushed that one yeah i actually really felt good about that one yeah